Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, we'll be getting started into Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. So, what we'll be dealing with is the third part of the book, which is really a nice big chunky book. And the first two big parts deal with anti-Semitism and imperialism. So, we'll only be dealing with just the last chunk on totalitarianism. And the reason for this is that it's just purely out of own personal interest, out of the book. And so, the edition that we'll be using as well is the Penguin Modern Classics edition. And for this episode as well, we'll be only reading up to the first break as well. There's so much covered in just the first part of it. And so, it's a nice thing to just make our way slowly and progressively through the origins of totalitarianism. As we'll have a nice, slow, deep read and cover, hopefully, a lot more bases that way as well. So, for this episode then, we'll be having a quick overlook of the background of the section The Origins of Totalitarianism, then a brief history of post-World War I Germany, then discussing the organization of the masses, as Arendt likes to say, and then into discuss the importance of how propaganda fills a role, and then rounding off with a discussion of the illusions of democracy that was illuminated with the rise of the totalitarian movement. And as well as it's nice to say here that the reason why I've chosen specifically to focus on Germany and using examples from post-World War I Germany is also just to narrow our focus down because the book itself covers examples from very rich research and as well covers Russia and touching upon what happens in Europe as a whole within post-World War I. So, if we try to cover all of that, we would be here for literally hours talking about what exactly happens within each given country, as well as all the various different goings-on. And so it's just nice to narrow it down as well, just to specifically focus on an example of Germany. As well, it's just from a personal comfort background as well, since within high school here in the UK, or at least in Scotland, we're taught all about World War One, and then what happens as well in post-World War One Germany. So, purely from a comfort point, purely because I have, from own personal background and so forth, more 
an idea about what happens in Germany rather than elsewhere. But that, of course, shouldn't stop everybody else if their specific interest is within Italy in the rise of Mussolini or within Stalinism in Russia and so forth. Feel free to have a wee look at the book and Arendt covers all those bases as well. So, let's get started into it then. Let's get started into the background of part three, which is on totalitarianism. So, Hannah Arendt then is born 1906, died 1975. So, nice time frame as well, just to put a brackets around exactly what period we're looking at, the very start of the 20th century up until the mid-1970s. So then, having lived through two world wars as well, so Arendt then started writing this from the end of World War II in 1945. The original manuscript was finished in autumn 1949 and then first published in 1951. And, as we've touched upon as well, discusses the rise of totalitarian governments and dictatorships in Europe from the end of World War I to the end of World War II. So, that gives us a nice background exactly in time frame for when it's written as well, as well as what it's going to cover. So, as we said, we're going to only use examples that are going to be related into post-World War One Germany. And, of course, it goes without saying, if Arendt suddenly then has a whole section that discusses specifically Russia or another specific country, of course, we'll try and go and touch upon it and further flash it out and use examples and so on. But for the moment, let's just put our blinkers on, is a good way of putting it, just to post-World War One Germany. So, let's have a little bit of quick recap of the history of that. Germany had lost World War One along with their allies, which consisted of Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire, fighting against the allied forces of Great Britain, France, Russia, Italy, Japan, Romania, and the United States. And then, of course, the big thing that happens is the Treaty of Versailles, which is the peace treaty, was signed in June 1919. This identified Germany as the sole cause for the war and made them pay war reparations of 132 billion gold marks, which amounts to about $269 billion, 222 billion euros, or 198 billion pounds today. Germany was also stripped of its colonies and there was imposed severe restrictions on Germany for rebuilding its army and fleet. And the Nazi party denounced the Weimar Republic, which is the government that was set up, and the politicians who signed the Treaty of Versailles, who they call the November Criminals. So that'll nicely tie into a little bit of the history and background. So let's get stuck into Arendt and the prerequisites for a totalitarian movement, as it's sort of touched upon here. So normally, people don't participate in politics, she says, except in a case of national emergency. And the example of this 
is mandatory conscription to the army. We're never really directly confronted by public affairs or really feel responsible for them. The only time that we normally do participate or feel responsible is in elections, which require us to briefly take part in politics. And it's whole part of that democratic process for us to let the politicians or elected officials to take care of the political business for us and let them worry about it rather than have us always actively participate in politics. And of course, that's one of the things that we've just recently had as well with the whole election debacle within the United States with President Trump and President-elect, soon to be President Biden, and that whole electoral process trying to vote on either side. And then it's that whole part of making the populace aware this is now election period having all the various different policies and so forth, and what ultimately happens is you look at where your various options, what they're arguing for, and then you lean on whatever side that you prefer. And then you go and cross your box at the polls and so on, and part of the whole democratic process, the person that's voted for ultimately has the possibility of winning, but of course in American politics you have the whole electoral college and so on, hence why you can't just say completely the democratic vote wins outright. So, what we could take away then initially kicking is off is that we are normally not really engaged within politics all the time. However, we see within totalitarian movements, Arendt says, that It starts to happen when a mass of people have acquired an appetite for political organization. And this mass of people is a collective that are neutral and politically indifferent and never join a political party. And the rise of both the Nazi party and the communist movements work to recruit these people. And new propaganda was created to appeal to those outside the party system. And when joining up to the totalitarian movement, people would then have active participation in public affairs and felt individually and personally responsible for the rule of the country. And so here's where an interesting thing immediately pops up. Initially, when you think about this, you think sort of in the back of your mind, okay, here you have either the Nazi or the communist parties. Who they are going to be recruiting, you think, are people who are going to be leaning in those directions. That is to say, people who, you would say, would be leaning on the Nazi side, would read what they're going on about, and therefore say, aha, they go with exactly what I think. Or the communist side would go, I have this leaning, and therefore I'm going to go agree with them. No, Arendt says, this is not the case whatsoever. In fact, what we have is a large set of the population that are not political whatsoever. And, of course, this is a thing that we see within election process and voting time as well. This incredible mass of amount of people that are completely politically indifferent and don't have a leaning to 
any political party whatsoever. So the whole democratic process is for people to try and argue and make their policies to try and therefore appeal to all this politically indifferent mass. And so isn't this curious then for the whole act of politics with the whole political indifferent mass that then those are the people that then ultimately have an impact upon who's voted and who's not. And we don't immediately have a group of people that are already Nazis or already communists and so forth. It's all those politically indifferent people. As well as we can then say, with the role of propaganda, you also have the argument that it would be the stupid or ignorant people that would you would say, well, it's because of their stupidity or their ignorance that they just agree with that propaganda. And if somehow they were more rational or more intellectual, therefore they would see the illusions and see exactly what's going on with the propaganda and be able to immediately recognize that it's trying to trick you in some way. And what is so interesting as well, that Arendt says, no, the whole role of propaganda is in fact touching upon incredibly real issues, incredibly real things that are affecting absolutely everybody in the country. And so when we deal with post-World War I Germany, for example, and you have the war reparations, you have that incredible amount of horrible situation in which hyperinflation occurs. And so, just a brief explanation of what hyperinflation is, is that when you print more money, you don't end up with just a vast quantity of money. You end up actually devaluing the currency. And so that's what happened in post-World War I Germany, is that you have the horrible situation in which they're trying to repay this massive war debt, in which then people try to print more money, and then that has a horrible knock-on effect of dramatically harming the economy. And I remember at school as well, we had a picture in which money was so worthless, children were literally stacking it up and making like play forts out of it, because it was that worthless. And so then the Nazi propaganda, then we can say, part of the recruitment process was actually focused on this whole frustrated German populace or set of people who are feeling the effects of hyperinflation as well as the rising unemployment within the country. And one of the things that, of course, the Nazi propaganda focused on was the anti-Semitism and the whole roles of the Jewish population for taking away the jobs, just as a little sideline there for the reasons for why there's the whole job crisis that's going on. But let's go into a specific example here that I managed to find. So there is a Nazi recruitment poster from the 1930s, which states, the Nazi party protects the people, your fellow comrades need your help and advice, so join your local party organization. And the image itself 
is of a German family, a mother holding her baby and smiling at it, with the father holding his son and wife, as well as smiling down at the baby as well. And their other child smiles at the viewer. And we also have this looming sort of eagle in the background as well, that sort of looms over the family. As here we have a great thing as well, and a quote from Arithk Narayan Swami's blog article, which is called The Analysis of Nazi Propaganda, that touches upon the psychological aspects of it, and what is all the psychological things that's happening within Nazi propaganda, which is a really interesting read itself. But here for the German family, it says, the primary objective of such a portrayal was to show the hard-working German family, which was being unfairly punished by the cost of reparations from World War I. In doing so, the Nazis succeeded in propagating what is now known as in-group bias, which is the tendency for people to give preferential treatment to other people that they perceive as being members of their own group. This, in combination with the anti-Jewish propaganda, succeeded in distancing the majority of the German population from the rest of the undesirables, as it says. And so here we can see how the Nazi propaganda is managing to touch upon those two points of hyperinflation as well as rising unemployment. You have both the look at this wonderful family, nice happy family, 2.4 children as it is, and don't you feel in the same situation? And therefore collecting that up into the whole idea is it says they're in group bias, for therefore we feel this given way, we all share the same pains, and therefore creating also an exclusion of others at the same time through that anti-Jewish propaganda. So therefore we have all this going on within the propaganda itself, attacking hyperinflation as well as unemployment. So we also have a really interesting quote as well from Mein Kampf. And here it is directly from Hitler's words as well on the role of propaganda. The first duty of propaganda is, is to win over the people who can subsequently be taken into the organization. And the first duty of the organization is to select and train men who will be capable of carrying on the propaganda. The second duty of the organization is to disrupt the existing order of things and thus make room for the penetration of the new teaching which it represents, while the duty of the organizer must be to fight for the purpose of securing power so that the doctrine may finally triumph. And so here we can see the twofold role of the propaganda that Arendt touches upon. First, to win over the politically indifferent. As it says, the duty of the propagandist is to win over the people who could subsequently be taken into the organization, touching upon very real issues that people can identify with. And then once you've won over them, once they're indoctrinated, as they say, they will act as a disruptive force against the traditional party system of the government. 
And so that's in itself really interesting, isn't it? Here we have not only a role of the propaganda wanting to be an act of indoctrination, of grabbing these politically indifferent people by making them associate with these real issues, but also that once they're indoctrinated, you then act as this whole disruptive force as a means of challenging and overcoming the traditional form of government that's there. And it's only successful for the absolute securing of power. So let's delve in a little bit deeper and build upon this thing of the totalitarian movement and how it differs from a traditional party system. So, in governments, then, there can be a party-style system where a variety of opinions are given, such as those traditionally viewed as more socialist versus conservative or environmental. Here in the UK, of course, you can have the Socialist Party and then the Conservative Party, which is more right-leaning, as well as we have the Green Party, which deals with the environmental issues. But... Here's what's interesting about the totalitarian movements. In the totalitarian arguments, there's no need to refute an opposing view from opposing parties. Arguments are based upon various causes that were beyond the power of reason, such as deep natural, psychological, or social issues. They preferred methods which ended in death than in persuasion, and so ruled based upon terror than conviction. And so this is a really interesting point that Arendt makes as well, that within the traditional party politics system, you have all this cluster of people who represent different viewpoints from the left, from the right, from touching upon environmental issues and so on. But here within the totalitarian movements, we specifically have something that tries to just overcome all that because it doesn't specifically align itself with any specific view. It's neither for the left, nor for the right, nor for the environment and so on. It's not for any of all that. What it argues for is, in fact, things that are beyond the capacity of reason which is those deep natural psychological or social issues, as it says. And then your methods are not based upon persuasion, again, but rather there is no argument of points. There is not, here is my view, now where is your point of view, as Camus would say in the fall, as we've just covered, but rather, it very much touches upon that point that he says as well. Here is my opinion, and in two years, the police will come to your door and show you that I'm right. It's that horrific sort of realization that in itself, that opposition is so healthy and beneficial for the government system. And the need for argument, and with something trying to usurp all that, shows precisely the immense benefit of the party system. 
And having all that clash, because as soon as you get rid of all that clash, you only have one view, and that one view is going to be the only view. And here we have within the continuation of the party system itself, Arendt touches upon, was that the parties themselves hope to restore back into that system once the totalitarian powers took control and that their propaganda was nostalgic, psychological and ideological in their support. But the key thing that she says is that they lost all this neutral base and all these indifferent supporters in which the parties themselves rely upon because they didn't recruit new members from younger generations. The younger generations weren't swayed by their arguments any given way. And so here we have a example again from a socialist democratic party election poster from 1932. And so it's just a picture of Germany with a bunch of crosses all over it and Germany's in black and the crosses are in white and this is from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum website which states the anti-Nazi political poster from 1932 German federal elections the poster depicts Germany bleeding and covered in crosses implying if the Nazis gained power the systems of violence and intimidation would cause Germany and its people to suffer. By June 1932 Germany was deep in the throes of the Great Depression with 6 million unemployed. This economic distress contributed to a rise in the popularity of the Nazi party, who, along with the Communist and the Social Democrats, were the most popular political parties in Germany. The Social Democrats ran on a platform of maintaining freedom, democracy and the Republic, honouring Germany's political and financial obligations, job creation, government expenditure, cuts to lower taxes and free speech. When Germany held parliamentary elections in July that year, the Nazi party won almost 40% of the electorate. And it's as well to say and touch upon here, the Nazis just suddenly didn't just have immediate power. This was a thing that was slowly, slowly gained. And they slowly, slowly gained a footing in which they then inserted themselves into, of course, the government as well as into let's say the police which then of course the ss was created the old nazi special police force and you could just see a slow infiltration slow build of power for the nazis as well as i think it's good to hear take a little sideline just for a moment and touch upon an important point that arendt makes in relation to this politically indifferent mass is that they have to be thought of in a completely different way from how you would view that of the classes from the industrial period. And here, specifically thinking about Marx and the way in which Marx talks about the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, which is the working class. And so here, Arendt says you can't think of this politically indifferent mass of people collection 
in relation to specifically how Marx would think of the way in which the bourgeoisie and the proletariat would work. Why? It's easy enough to see exactly why this is the case if we go back into how a totalitarian movement is different from the traditional party system. Because when you think of a specific class, it is arguing for a specific viewpoint. That is to say, if you are viewing from the proletariat side of things, you're going to be arguing for the working class. Just in the same sense that within the party system, if you're going to be arguing for the Socialist Party, then your view is going to be arguing very much so from the left political leanings. Or if conservative, then very much more arguing from the right. But here you can see the whole point that the class system is very much so like the party politics system. It's all arguing from a specific viewpoint that has a specific argument that has an opinion and a conviction about it. But within the totalitarian movement, there is no class. There is only a mass, which is a really nice way of putting it. There's only this big, huge mass that don't have any political leanings and are completely indifferent. And here you go back into those really interesting points that she makes again, that once you have this massive political indifference, what exactly does the power of the propaganda do? Is touch upon those very real issues, in this case of post-World War One, of a rising unemployment, as we just said there, 6 million, as well as the problems of hyperinflation and the horrible economic situation that's occurring in Germany. You have those two incredibly horrible things that's happening. You have all this propaganda from the Nazi party that's saying to you, look at you German people within this situation, we empathize with you, we are going to help you. And therefore you're not being, again, stupid or indifferent to that, you're identifying with very real problems, very real things that everybody can associate with. And suddenly you have someone who's coming to you in a situation of need, and everybody's suffering to suddenly have a party that's going to say, we can get you out of this because we identify with you and you're suffering. That would sound appealing to people. Of course, then it adds on a little tagline as well. Just because you have a politically indifferent mass doesn't automatically mean to say that you immediately have a totalitarian movement on your hand, which is an important thing to put in. Why is this the case? is because it goes into that last section that we're going to round off on as well. The illusions of democracy. Because democracy itself depends upon this indifferent mass, as well as what the totalitarian movements do, is what Arendt says. They depend upon such an extreme mass for the totalitarian movements that it almost seems impossible, even because of the limitations of a specific country and the size of their population. Because of the sheer mass and size that it requires, it almost seems impossible. And hence why she says, in the situations in which you don't have a large set of population, what tends to happen then is in fact a dictatorship in a one-party system 
will take place. And she says, actually, in Germany, that's the given case because she says even the German population was too small and it was only once the territory in the east, she says, was taken over could a truly totalitarian movement be established. And so let's go into those interesting points again, going back into it on the illusions of democracy. As she says, the success of the totalitarian movement ended two illusions of democracy. The first one is that the majority had taken part in government and each individual had sympathies with their own or somebody else's party. This is the whole idea that, like we said, starting off as well, that if somebody had, let's say, Nazi leanings, they would sign up and join the Nazi party. Or same for the Communist Party. Here in the same idea for the democratic idea that somebody would have their own leanings towards a political party in the first place and therefore go and vote for them. Or that they would vote for somebody else's party. A good example of this was when somebody was interviewed on TV and the news and they said, why did you vote for the Conservative Party? They replied, I voted because my granddad always voted for them. Which in itself is quite remarkable as a reply. But that's the whole point of saying, well, here I'm voting for them because... I empathize with, let's say, my granddad. I really like my granddad. I think he's a swell fella. And therefore, I'm going to vote for what he likes. So then, what did the totalitarian movements and the success of that show? That the politically neutral and indifferent are the majority in the democratic system. And democracy could remain according to rules that are recognized by a minority. And this is a really interesting part about democracy, I think, that Arendt touches upon here. That, in fact, it's not people who are already leaning in one direction or another. Because, going back to it again, what are we like nine times out of ten? Don't really think about politics all the time for the majority of people. And therefore, this mass, this cluster of politically indifferent people are the ones that, in fact, have the majority in the democratic system. Then, of course, it touches upon that whole point. If the democratic system in the majority is, in fact, not the people who lean towards, let's say, whatever is the majority government in the UK at the present, that is the Conservatives, that doesn't mean to say, therefore, the majority of the population in the UK are voting for the Conservatives. In fact, it shows that the majority of the people in the UK are politically indifferent. But then the people that are recognising the rules, as she says, are that minority, are only that select few, and are therefore not everybody, and so therefore democracy only works because it's only that minority set of people that are actually recognising the rules. Isn't it interesting? So then, the second one for the illusion of democracy is that these politically indifferent masses didn't matter. De democratic government rested upon the silent appropriation and toleration 
of the indifferent sections of the people as well as upon those who were visible and articulate institutions and organizations of the country. When the Nazis invaded Parliament, at least I think it's in relation to Germany here, I don't think that Arendt gives a specific party or country when she gives this example. They succeeded in the idea that the parties were spurious and did not correspond to the realities of the country. They undermined the respect of the majority-ruled governments than in their constitutions and the democratic freedoms, meaning is where citizens belong to and are represented by groups or forming political and social hierarchy. The breakdown, then, of the class system, as she says, is one of the most significant and dramatic events in recent German history. As what she quotes from somebody else as well. It's an absolutely fantastic read because it's so dense and well-researched as well whilst you make your way through the book. And so, this then touches upon that really interesting point that the importance of how the democratic system works is for the precisely importance of this politically indifferent mass. Because democracy, as she says, rests upon this indifferent neutral mass as well as upon those that are not indifferent. And therefore, what the totalitarian movements try to do is to undermine all that party system get over all those different various opinions which lean one way or the other, but also undermine that whole democratic process. Because, as we've touched upon as well, the totalitarian movements try to only argue for one overall universal point that is reflective upon in either a deep natural, as she says, social, psychological way that overcome all these opinions. And so democracy and the freedom of democracy is where then the citizens belong to and are represented precisely by all those different groups and the hierarchy within all that system. Of course, there is a hierarchy because people will vote for more for one party than another. And therefore, you're going to have that whole hierarchical system within it as well. And so I hope this has been a really interesting kicking us off into Hannah Arendt's the origins of totalitarianism, t dipping our toes a little bit into the first part on the masses, as she says. So, what can we say, taking away from the first little section that she talks about? That we have a mass of politically indifferent people. These are incredibly important for the democratic process. The majority of people, of course, are those people who are politically indifferent. Political parties depend upon this politically indifferent people to be elected in the first place, to sway them towards their whole arguments in order for them to be voted upon, as well as political parties themselves depend upon them in order to recruit new members and young people. And then on the totalitarian side of things, we have the as well that recruitment of that politically indifferent mass, hence why the mass in and of itself is not going to lead you to a totalitarian regime, because that democracy equally requires the recruitment of that politically indifferent mass. And then we have 
the more totalitarian aspects of it by trying to overcome the class system through as well the movement towards a universal approach. There's only one way of doing things. And then also trying to overcome any specific persuasion or argument. And hence why Arendt says as well that the totalitarian movements would ultimately hit a brick wall if they tried to sincerely participate in party politics. Because then, what is she saying with that? Their whole arguments that focus upon death rather than persuasion would immediately be, of course, hit with immense rebuttals and refutals against what they're saying. How dare you argue for this? And so on. And having all the various different fantastic arguments that you would have in opposition to what they're saying. And then touching upon that important points as well, the role of propaganda, again, can't be underestimated here, but that is not touching upon really just any old points or that is just a stupid, ignorant mass of people that would agree to what's being said, but rather the propaganda itself is touching upon very real issues that people can identify with, associate with, and therefore trying to recruit people out that way. Then we have that other totalitarian aspect as well of that disruptive force. Because it's not enough, like in a traditional party system, where you would have the elected people into government and then you would continue on debating and having various different arguments and so forth, all in a very healthy democratic way. Here you have the specific identification that it's not at all to do with opinion or debate, but rather what it's going for is the complete overcoming of the traditional government party system altogether through the prevailing of one overall opinion that tries to circumvent all the various different opinions completely. Whew, that's covering quite a lot, isn't it? <laughs> so, I hope that was a really interesting listen to. So, in the next episodes, we'll be continuing on through our read of Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. It's going to be a good old, long, nice, deep read into it as well. It should be really nice as we started off here. Feel free to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. It would be a great idea to get some tips as well or just what you would fancy out of the Patreon as well because it's really just setting out $1 at the minute and just having a set of notes and so on. Let's find out exactly what people would like and, and hopefully I'd be able to give it to you as well on the Patreon. Also, feel free to tip me a coffee at coffee.com forward slash dissecting philosophy, ko-fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. And lastly, I can be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time.